All right, we are live. What's up, guys? Welcome to Fed It, man. Today, we're going to be talking about 9-11 and Osama bin Laden. You guys have been requesting this one for quite a while. So without further ado, let's get right into the show, guys. I was a special agent with Homeland Security Investigations, okay, guys? HSI. The cases that I did mostly were human smuggling and drug trafficking. No one else has these documents, by the way. Here's what Fed It covers. Dr. Lafredo confirmed lacerations due to stepping on glass. Murder investigation. You see him reaching in his jacket. You don't know. And he's positioning. Been on February 13, 2019. You're facing two counts of premeditated murder. Racketeering and Rico conspiracy. Young slime life here and after referred to as YSL. The defendants uh, 6 9 And then this is Billy Seiko right here. Now, when they first started, guys, 6 9 ran. I'm a fed. I'm watching this music video. You know, I'm bobbing my head like, hey, this shit lit. But at the same time, I'm pausing. Oh, wait, who this? Right? Oh, who's that in the back? Firearms and violent crimes. AKA, Pusha I see violated. In order to stay away from the victim. Strapper Pusha I see arrested after shooting at King of Diamonds, Miami Strip Club, injured one this person. Is the, this is the one that, that's going to fuck him up because this gun is not traceable. Well, what happened at the gun range? Here's your boy, 42 Doug, right here on the left. Okay. Sex trafficking and sex crimes. They can effectively link him to paying an underage girl. And the first bomb went off right here. Inspired by Al Qaeda. Two terrorists, their brothers, the Zokar Sarnev and Tamer Lynn Sarnev. When the cartel shipped drugs into the country. As this guy got arrested for um, espionage, okay, trading secrets with the Russians for monetary compensation. The largest corrupt police bust in New Orleans history. The days of the police are gone. So he was in this bad boy. We're going to go over his past, the gang ties, so that this all makes sense. All right, we are back. What's up, guys? Welcome to Fed It, man. Uh, today's a special episode, man. We're going to be talking about the 9-11 attacks in Osama bin Laden. Let's go through memory lane real quick. So when, when uh, on September 11, 2001, where was I? I was in sixth grade, guys, in my English language arts class. And I'll never forget, it was probably around 11 a.m. or so, um, right around lunchtime, 11 or 12 p.m., 11 a.m. or 12 p.m. And basically, I'll never forget, it was Miss Landry was her name. She goes and she's like, hey, guys, something terrible happened in New York. They're going to make an announcement for it and in a second. I was like, what the hell? And then, like, the principal called in the loudspeaker, said, hey, guys, something awful has happened in New York City. Um, school is um, school is going to be ended and you guys have a half day. And I remember everyone in the fucking classroom was like, yeah, woo. They were, like, excited as hell. You know, everyone was, like, going wild, just cheering all over the place. And um, it was crazy because we were just like, oh, yeah, or, you know, we got a half day. Woo. Everyone's high five and excited. And, you know, then the bell rings and, you know, we end up getting on the buses and going home and no one really knew what was going on. Remember guys, this is 2001. This is before the age of the cell phone, social media, et cetera. So you actually had to like get home and get in front of a TV to figure out what the hell was going on. And, um, I'll never forget. I walked into the house and my dad had the news on and you can see, um, the world trade center and like the twin towers, everything just like that leveled completely destroyed and i'll never forget he told me yes yeah, son we were we were attacked by terrorists and you know at that time we didn't know who the hell it was you know i remember my dad saying like hey maybe saddam hussein was behind it you know maybe it was the people that attacked us back in the early 90s in the world trade center bombing before um and it was just really really uh surreal to see so um and you know we had a bunch of 
uh, issues that came after 9-11, you know, like my, my, you know, I grew up, as you guys know, as a Muslim family. My parents are Sudanese, so Arab-speaking Muslim family. And my mom got harassed a lot, guys, after 9-11. You know, they'll call her terrorists and, you know, derogatory terms against Muslims, all this other stuff that I'd probably get banned off YouTube for saying. Um, but that sparked me to get involved in law enforcement, especially on the federal side, to go after these individuals that were involved in such a heinous attack and, you know, obviously caused such a, you know, a little bit more of a difficult life for us as Muslim Americans. So, um, you know, this this is going to be a pretty special episode here. And uh, we're going to be covering the 9-11 attacks in a multiple part series. And <clears throat> a part of that is we're going to go ahead and go into uh, the FBI investigation into the terrorist plots, how it unfolded, etc. I'm also going to go ahead for all the conspiracy theorists out there and cover uh, a documentary that breaks that stuff down from the loose chains and, you know, the new Pearl Harbor. I'll also go through what some of the conspiracy theorists have as far as, you know, saying that 9-11 wasn't real or whatever. And we'll look at all sides, guys. I'm going to be objective here and look at all the sides. I'll go over the official version and the conspiracy version as well. But for today's episode, we're going to go over the FBI's response to the 9-11 attacks, okay? And we're going to be watching a documentary called 26th Street Garage. Um, really interesting documentary documents the investigative efforts of the Bureau from the New York Field Office post-attack. So um, let me go ahead and present the screen here. Um, well, and while I do this, guys, do me a favor. Go ahead and like the video because I would really appreciate it. It helps a lot when you guys like the videos. Um, hold on. Let me move this out the way. Give me one sec, guys. You know, I'm one-man show here. So, <clears throat> and I'm using Firefox, which Firefox is a little bit different than, um, it's a little bit different. Is this it? No. Allow. No, that's not it. Okay, that's the wrong screen. But you know what? Maybe I can move this over. No, that's not it. Give me one second, guys. Give myself the stupid button right now for taking a while. Stupid. <laughs> Hold on. All right, cool. We got it. All right, let's get into uh, let it get into the documentary, man. Hopefully, we don't get killed by the copyright. The video you are about to see has never been seen by the public. Oh my god. It was shot 20 years ago by FBI surveillance specialist Rick Sutton from the 25th floor of the Bureau's New York headquarters. I heard the noise. I was standing about right here. And I heard the noise. I looked out the window. All I saw was a big, huge fireball coming out. The voices are those of specialist Sutton and other FBI personnel. Nobody. And for some of you guys that are wondering, the FBI is located at, I think, uh, 26 Federal Plaza in Manhattan. So this isn't too far from the location. Tragedy in the making. I think they'll be okay. They'll probably get out there. 
It's just those people that were on the floor where the plane was. Located. No, but they can't get down from there, Rick, and yeah. the fire's... Oh, man, the other that? one blew up. Holy shit, another one. Oh, my God. The other building blew. The other one just blew up. The other building blew. Both of them. Holy, Holy shit. The other one blew up. I mean, it was a terrorist attack. It had to be. God. Holy shit. What is this blew up? It just blew just up. It blew up. Just like the first one. Hey guys, how about getting out of here? Yeah. Everybody get the ground. Huh? Guys, maybe we should get out of here. What are you saying? Not a, not, you know, not a bad idea, given that, you know, you know, the FBI is the chief agency and in investigating terrorist attacks. So the next plane might be destined for them. Remember, guys, this was pandemonium when it happened. This is before the age of cell phones, this is the age, before the age of Internet. Um, well, at least how do I say this main Internet in a mainstream level where everyone had access to it? You know, people had Internet, but it was dial up. It was slow and make that stupid ass noise, you know, sound like a freaking lawn lawnmower. So, um this was way before the age of um, social media. So for them, they're like, yo, we don't know what's going to happen next. At this point, specialist Sutton is forced to evacuate along with the entire bureau. Yeah. And the surveillance guys, uh, just so you guys know, when they say surveillance specialists, FBI has um, surveillance teams that go out and watch your guys like 24 seven if needed. And they're, primarily you know designed to go and watch people on surveillance because surveillance is an extremely taxing thing and obviously you know you need a lot of manpower to do it you need a lot of agents so one way that you can kind of curb that the need for that manpower is you hire people that are specialists in surveillance alone um i don't think they're gun carrying to be honest with you i, I don't think they're um they're not they're not 1811s they're not criminal investigators or special agents but uh but they help you conduct your surveillances FBI office at 26 Federal Plaza. The oh, look at that. I had it. I got it right, baby. And not even freaking uh, just off the top of that. 26 Federal Plaza. <laughs> just in the nation. Empties. It is 9.12 a.m. Despite losing their command center and virtually all their resources, these FBI agents must mobilize now. And the reason why I picked this documentary, guys, it's a very unique look into how the FBI did this case from strictly the Bureau's angle. You know, you watch a lot of documentaries out there that talk about, you know, oh, Osama bin Laden this, Osama bin Laden that. But no one really goes into the actual investigation like this one does and how the Bureau was able to figure it out. So I think this is going to be really interesting for you guys to see how a federal investigation into terrorism is initiated, investigated and brought to a close. September 11th, 2001, is primary day in New York City. Public schools are just starting a new year. The Yankees are on a roll and will host the White Sox that night. I was driving down through the city and I was singing along to the radio. I was just approaching to enter the Lincoln Tunnel. While I was sitting at my desk at 26 Federal Plaza, I heard a huge explosion.
As y'all can see, 2001 didn't have the best cameras. That thing was lagging like a motherfucker, man. <laughs> That's a L camera right there. I saw this black smoke billowing from the North Tower. They interrupted the music to say a jetliner had just crashed into the World Trade Center. New York has seen nothing like this since 1945 when a B-25 bomber accidentally flew into the Empire State Building. It was like, hit the siren, throw the light up on the roof, and jet down Broadway. My phone rang in the car. It was my boss, Barry Morn, who was the assistant director of New York at the time. And he said, I'm going to the scene. Meet me there. So I made record time. So just so you guys know, the assistant director is pretty much like one of the top guys in the New York office, okay? And then you got that guy who's just spoke. Who, he's an assistant special agent in charge, all right? So he's like a, what you would consider like a third-line supervisor. He's probably three away from the top. So already the brass and the, you know, in the top levels of the bureau are, you know, A, we already know more than likely this is probably going to, you know, this is uncommon. This looks like a terrorist attack. We're going to have to respond to some degree. Or if it's not a terrorist attack, at least we need to respond and make sure it wasn't. So um, as you guys can see, this is before the age of cell phones. So, you know, you probably got a beep or something like that and told them, hey, we need to meet up at this location. Going down the West Side Highway, red lights and siren. The streets are teeming with panic and people evacuating. It's a very chaotic scene. My purpose was to get into the lobby of Tower One because that's where I was told the police department and the fire department were meeting as, as their kind of initial mustering point. I grabbed the first police officer I could. I remember saying to him, hey, guy, where's the mobilization point? He said, pal, I have no fucking idea. One note of concern here at the FBI already. Their field office in New York is located very, very close to the World Trade Center. I saw a huge rider yellow rental truck parked in front of the building. And... I said, oh, my God. And we know the history of rider rental trucks when it comes to truck bombs. And, uh, you know, yep, rider rental. That's how they got it. And, um, you know, the 93 World Trade Center bombing. And just so you guys know, look how close they are. What is that? What, 10 blocks, maybe, if that? Between World Trade Center and um, FBI headquarters? That's wild. I saw it. And mind you guys, in 1993, I have done a breakdown on this as well on the FedEx channel, guys. They tried to take down a World Trade Center with a rental truck armed with explosives. A huge rider yellow rental truck parked in front of the building. And I said, oh, my God. And we know the history of rider rental trucks when it comes to truck bombs and, uh, you know, IEDs. It was a rider truck that exploded in the underground garage of the... I broke this case down, too, guys. Check it out. It's on my documentary playlist. Um, I went into detail on, on this, on the 1993 World Trade Center bombing with the attacks, um, excuse me, with the terrorists that were involved in this plot. World Trade Center, eight years earlier. 26 Federal Plaza is not safe at this time. 
They didn't know if it was a target, if it was being targeted. We all had the same goal, and that is to get out. Everyone in the FBI office is immediately forced to abandon their desks, leaving behind computers, files, secure phone lines, virtually every tool they have to do their jobs. And all the agents are unnerved. What did we miss? Could we have prevented this? I'll tell y'all this, just from my personal experience and training, anytime there's a terrorist attack, the FBI starts stressing. <laughs> Yo, they already know what time it is. Every, they're going to, you know, initiate the entire country pretty much to come in and help them run the investigation. So anytime, guys, some type of attack like this happens, whether it's 1993 World Trade Center bombing, 9-11, the Boston Marathon bombing, anything like that where it's successful, bro, the Bureau is going to be stressed. Everybody's going to be stressed, to be honest, because even other agencies come in and start helping as well. You know, I told you guys about the 19, uh, the um, the Boston Marathon bombing. When that bombing happened, I was actually in Boston, guys. And what ended up happening was they had to, um, they used other agencies. I remember going into the command center and uh, I went with an agent when I was an intern and we went ahead and got a lead and ran it down in like Somerville or something like that. Uh, I had to go interview some person that had given a tip and they were just running down leads. So everyone gets involved whenever a terrorist attack of like this magnitude gets, uh, is it, it happens. And from all directions were your peers, your FBI colleagues. It was at that point we were constructed to go to the playground in Chinatown, and that was our rally point for headcount. The FBI has only a loose contingency plan for disasters, and the New York office is already facing huge demands. Locate and organize its agents, rescue as many people as possible from the towers, and launch what they know will become a massive investigation. Yeah, guys, anytime something crazy like this happens, um, the office's chief, you know, number one responsibility right away is to make sure their personnel are secure. Um, and I remember when I was an HSI agent myself, they had this um, this software on your phone where, um, you know, th that would basically, people would make jokes and say, it's to track where we are to make sure that we're working. But, um, but you would use it to like check in anytime you were doing some type of, uh, whether it was you were working on a case or you were out and about doing surveillance or whatever it may be, or there was any type of situation where an emergency was happening and they needed to get a hold of agents, uh, they would use that software and you would check in and make sure that you were good, right? And flooding, hurricanes, anything, natural disasters, whatever. But in this situation, they have to do it by hand because, again, this is 2001. So they have to go ahead and try to communicate. You know, this is before the age of cell phones like that, guys. You, If you had a cell phone in 2001, you were a fucking boss, you know? So um, text messaging was relatively new. So... This was something that, uh, you know, was fairly difficult to do. In today's day and age, it's like, oh, that's not a big deal. Just send out a mass text and everybody's going to see it. Nah, it doesn't happen like that in, you know, 2001. But as they try to do all three simultaneously, minutes are ticking by. Yeah, that's an important thing to note is that they, they had to, you know, make sure all their agents were good, mobilize bomb squads, 
get agents involved in figuring out what the hell is going on, coordinating with the state and locals and making sure that people are safe. It's a massive effort to do this without the use of cell phones and internet uh, to the same sophistication that we have of today, guys. Thing was groaning louder and louder. It was like the building was crying. As you looked at it, it kind of rumble, 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 rumble after it made its left sway, right sway. And it got louder and louder and the ground was moving. And it made a slight like heave up, it, almost as if it was taking its last breath. And all of a sudden you can just hear this huge kaboom. And I could just hear each floor dropping. The ground just began to, to shake. If the New York office hadn't done a roll call that took the time it had, the agents easily could have been inside the crash area, if not inside the tower itself. That is wild, guys. Just debris and asbestos everywhere. And they had talked about this too. And when we when we break down the conspiracy theories, theory videos, like one of the issues with the Twin Towers, guys, it was filled with asbestos, man, which is like a very uh toxic building um in I said ingredient, like um building material for um building a building slash skyscrapers. So this is all all over the place. This is like all over the air in, in Manhattan. So this is wildness. You guys can see it's just a, a cloud of asbestos and dust. There's got to be volume and trap back there, though. I just remember staring at it, and all I could say was, oh, the World Trade Center is gone. Both of them are gone. It was empty space. When it settled, you could hear in the background the uh, chirping that was so loud from their World Trade Center. It's almost like cicadas in the summer. 
except with a mechanical pitch. It was the trackers on the firemen. It's the sound that the protection gear makes when the fireman stops moving. The world is in shock. New York is paralyzed. And the FBI, whose mission has only become more urgent, is in disarray. Agents are unable to communicate with or even locate each other. 2001 technology right there, guys. L2001 technology. <laughs> Things we that we take for granted today were non-existent back then. turned and started running up BC Street, and I ran to where my office was. My secretary—I I don't think she recognized me. It was like everyone else. We looked like you know zombies with all the white dust on us. I went into the, the bathroom and you know cleared my airways and tried to clean up my face and hands as best I could. A group of FBI agents had commandeered a you know, brokerage, I think it was Morgan Stanley or somebody, had an office across the street from the Trade Center. Recognize the technology then, telecommunication technology was much different. There was a phone bank of like six or seven pay phones had a cop stand by the phone so no one used them. And we opened up lines. I'm talking to Washington, and, and I said, what's going on there? And they had the bad report that the Supreme Court had just been hit. Oh, shit. It is becoming apparent no one anywhere knows what's happening. The only thing that's clear is the New York office of the FBI must find out who did this. Debris is falling from the sky. All of the buildings in the immediate area were being evacuated. You have to have a nerve center. We had to have a location. And we had to have one very quickly. So I was given the assignment to find a suitable forward command post. We're not going to go any place. And, and yeah, not having a headquarters will really cripple you guys because you got to remember, man, if you don't have a place where you have secure computers, access to your databases, access to, you know, looking at records, files, etc., that really hinders you as an investigator. So, um, you know, let's not let's definitely not undermine undermine the, the monumental task that this, you know, assistant special agent in charge is tasked with doing. You need to essentially find a way to get all your agents to one location, be able to have access to equipment, um, sophisticated equipment at that, secure phone lines, et cetera, because anytime you deal with terrorism, bam, automatically stuff's going to end up having to be classified at a certain level. You're going to have to adhere to all those classification um, rules and regulations when it comes to dealing with classified documents. So this is a huge task and a huge undertaking. And the fact that they can't even use their own building to conduct the investigation is wild, guys. So I can only imagine... Um, 
how many hardships you would have. They probably had to, and you guys are going to see how they overcame this here, but they also probably had to have other satellite offices as well set up. Which is identifiable as being uh, law enforcement or the FBI. And I said it had to be large enough to house a lot of people. I want it secured and I want it fairly close to ground zero. The agents, they reluctantly said, well, we could go to the 26th Street garage. At first, I was actually <laughs> thinking, how the hell is this going to work? I was a little bit skeptical. It's not going to be ideal. The 26th Street garage is the greatest untold story of 9-11. We made the decision to walk to the 26th Street Garage. And as we're walking over there, we're still seeing hundreds, if not thousands of people still moving their way north. But also we saw hundreds of boats coming from New Jersey over towards Manhattan, trying to help people get off. And it looked like Dunkirk. I will say this one thing that was, you know, even though this was a terrible event, uh, the good thing about 9 11 is it united the people, man. So many people came out to help each other. Same thing happened with the Boston Marathon bombing. Um, terrible events like this really unite people and bring them together. And um, you really start to see the courageous side of a lot of people that otherwise would never be courageous, um, putting their life on the line to help others in need. So uh, that's the one positive we could take away from this tragic event. Uh, that's when we first started hearing the military jets. I knew that it was war. When we first got there, SWAT was setting up command and control and securing the area with razor wire. They were arming those of us that were outside to set up a perimeter. We were given long arms, so shotguns and MP5s and MP10s, which is uh, looks like a little machine gun. I remember walking up the ramp. Yeah. I'll tell you guys this, not many agencies give out MP5s anymore. <laughs> that is a classic right there, man. You you ain't going to get... If, if, if you see any special agent nowadays with an MP5, they've probably been on the, uh, you know, they've probably been in law enforcement for a very long time. A lot of agencies phased out the MP5. You can smell oil and smell brake fluid. Opening the door to this massive space. It wasn't so much the smells that bothered you it was the visual the garage where the cars are where you get your oil changed where the fenders hanging off where you get the side light replaced it's hard to imagine that this was going to be the epicenter of the investigation as agents arrive on foot by the hundreds fbi logistics teams make space by towing out 500 cars it was a grease monkey location but you know ugly's okay no one's looking for, you know, the Waldorf Astoria in the middle of a crisis. FBI teams are scouring the city for office equipment and even buying it on their own credit cards. People trying to put tables up so people would have somewhere. That goes to show, like, the, the need and want to find out who is responsible for this. To work, get computers in there. They had a number of tables lined up with folding chairs. They set up the computers. They ran the lines. Banks of telephones, miles and miles of wire. 
and it actually looked like a big haul of spaghetti. I mean, there are wires hanging from all over the place, but they were necessary because regular phones weren't working. It was just logistically an overwhelming undertaking. As we were now seeing the 26th Street garage take its form, it was almost like an FBI baby being made in the womb because everything that the full-grown FBI mechanism had downtown was now coming to form. It was getting legs, it was getting arms, it was breathing, it was starting to stretch out. You guys are probably wondering why they picked the garage. Well, a couple of reasons, man. Number one, if a plane attack, you know, tries, you, you ain't going to hit a garage with a plane, you know, that's number one. Number two, they probably had this place, you know, at the time. Hell, I didn't even know that they had set up the 9-11 um, command center in the garage. So um, it was fairly secured. People didn't really know about it like that. You probably had to be law enforcement to get to be allowed in. Um, and then it was safe from any type of plane attacks. Right. So, um, you know, from even though it didn't look the best um, from a safety and security standpoint, pretty smart. And on top of that, it wasn't far from the main office and it wasn't far from ground zero. So they were able to be close to the scene while still simultaneously being close to their home office to get all the equipment in and, you know, expedite the process of moving on over. There were different areas for the bosses to sit, for management to sit, for the case agents to sit. Incredibly, within just a few hours, the garage begins to function as an FBI command post. The purpose of the garage is not only just to act as a communications channel, but to digest all the information coming in. The manifests. All right, now the case starts to take shape. For the planes, they were obtained fairly quickly from the airlines and started to be vetted out, both through agency files, FBI files, and getting multiple hits on the subjects. On 9-11, one of the passports of one of the hijackers was found a block or so from one of the towers in the debris, and that was brought into the command center. So, so you were fairly early on, were identifying who the hijackers. And just so you guys know, this woman, Mary Jo White, United States Attorney in Southern District of New York, um, she was the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York at that time, which means she was the top prosecutor for the feds in the Southern District of New York at the time, which the Southern District of New York, guys, is probably one of the most aggressive and prestigious United States attorney's offices in the country. And to become a United States attorney, you gotta be appointed by the president. So this woman was the US attorney for the Southern District of New York back during uh, this time period, which is, uh, you know, speaks volumes as to, uh, what's it called? The severity of this investigation and how important it was. I mean, this was no everyone's number one priority at the time. So, you know, I was I'm not surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, she was um, involved in every single situation going on with this investigation. All of the AUSAs that were actually prosecuting the case of assistant United States attorneys, uh, probably there were more than hell. I, I wouldn't be surprised if there weren't like 10 AUSAs on this case working it in tandem together just uh, because of how monstrous, uh, how much of a monstrosity it was, how big it was. Were, uh, but you wanted everyone else. You know, we photographed everything, including uh, aerial mapping, photographs of all of Ground Zero. All of that information was funneled back to the garage. I was involved with a lead group 
any information that they found in the investigation, whether it be the passport, the flight manifest, any information that the lead investigators wanted, followed up on or needed, the lead desk would pass out a packet. You know. Okay, so let me break that down for y'all real quick, what she means by a lead desk, etc. So when a terrorist like attack like this happens, right? So the FBI sets up a command post, okay? Typically, it's going to be at their field office, right? And I know this from a personal experience, man. So like the goddamn video, because you're not going to get information like this anywhere else, okay? Because I personally have been in FBI um, offices during a terrorist attack, like the Boston Marathon bombing. So they set up a command post and every law enforcement officer in the area, whether you work for, you know, Homeland Security, Customs, whatever it is, right? You work for DEA, ATF, whatever, uh, local police officers that work for the state, county, um, municipal, they all come in and they get leads, investigators, right? Detectives, special agents, you know, postal inspectors, everybody. They go in and the FBI generates leads. As the FBI gets leads, right, they're passing out leads to other law enforcement officers uh, that are assisting in the investigation and those people go out and run on those leads any leads that are like you know like from a random caller or aren't like maybe the hottest leads they pass out to other agencies all the hottest leads stay in house obviously for the lead case agents to do the investigation with okay um and in this case there's probably going to be one main case agent that's running the overall investigation and then a couple of co-case agents that are helping them with such a massive investigation right so um, and the New York field office is the head is the is the is the lead field office running the investigation. So they're the ones going ahead and sending out the um, the leads to other you know areas, jurisdictions, whatever. And then the Southern District of New York is the lead prosecutorial office. OK, so on one side, you got the New York field office, right? FBI lead agency. Then you got from the prosecutorial side, the Southern District of New York is the lead prosecuting AUSA's office. Right. Bam. They work together. And they go ahead and investigate the case alongside of each other, right? This is why they have AUSAs on this po- on this um, uh, documentary as well as FBI agents because you can't get anything done at the federal level without having the AUSA's office intimately involved, okay? So so the lead comes in. She's involved. She's Her job is to pass the leads out to other FBI agents and other law enforcement personnel. They run those leads down, all the best leads they keep in-house. So when you have a case like this and you have a phone line open and you have a bunch of information coming in, you need to go ahead and get these leads vetted out quickly. So that's why they're passing it out to people, distributing the labor so they can go ahead and work the case faster to figure out who the hell is involved. Because remember, guys, when this originally happened, they didn't know if more attacks were coming. So they need to work off of speed. Okay, they didn't know who all these people were. They didn't have all the information we have nowadays in 2022. So they were working fast to try to prevent anything else from happening. So they're moving with a sense of urgency. All right. Like Mission Impossible, you open it up and there's a picture of an individual and in it would be how they're associated with the case. They could have been in Muhammad Atta's address book or it could have been this is a number that one of the hijackers called 15 times in the first week. Uh, so we would go out and pay. See, and you can see how this can easily spider web out into anything. Like they're over here going after people in, in, in address books, phone numbers that might be off. And all of that stuff has to be followed up on. So imagine thousands upon thousands upon thousands of leads like this. Remember, guys, there were 19 hijackers. Okay. So they had to follow up on each and every single one of those hijackers whole life. Everyone associated with them, everyone that talked with them, etc. Now you can see how this can easily spiderweb into a massive investigation that requires massive manpower. Visit to that location. The Boston office had found a briefcase at the airport and it had 
some information as to what they were going to do. A handwritten letter was contained in Mohammed Adda's briefcase that was basically a declaration of we who are about to die for the cause remain strong and resolved. It was that type of rhetoric to sacrifice their own lives for the purpose of freeing up the Arabic world from the great Satan, the United States. And that same letter was recovered in Shanksville during the crime scene search. And it was a third copy of that same letter found. So that was really a key piece of evidence that, you know, linked all of them together as well. Bam. Oh. And that comes from collaborative efforts. You know, obviously the Boston field office taking action and moving quickly and trying to find, you know, leads because one of the, some of the hijackers flew out of the Logan International Airport out of Boston. Clues are coming in. Names are going up. Charts are being made. Whiteboards are being drawn. Lines are being connected. And so that was broken down initially in a handwritten whiteboard. But then as information was refined and identified more specifically, then it was memorialized in, in writing and in, in charts, which served a very useful purpose in terms of comparison of one flight against another. You know, who was together, who wasn't together. Once we had the connection between the actual hijackers to now begin the process of doing a complete vertical, a dissection, if you will, of that human being, their entire life, you know, where they were born, where they were. Yeah, see, then they're going ahead and like figuring out, you know, everything about this guy. And this in this case, we refer Muhammad Ada, Egyptian and a couple other, you know, of the hijackers were from all different parts, um, you know, of the world in the Middle East. And um, and here right here, you guys can see here, this is a part of an FBI. Um, uh, what's it called? Report. OK, so, yeah, they have to do all the work raised where they went to school. 302. Sorry, guys. That's what I was thinking in my head. I had a brain fart right there. Uh, the FBI report, if I'm not mistaken, is called uh, 302. DEA, it's called the uh, DEA Form 6 is their version of a report. I'm going to double check it just to make sure I'm right. But I'm almost certain FBI report is a FBI 302 form. When did they come to the United States? Where did they stay? Pulling reams and reams and reams of phone records and uh, financial records. How did they operate here in the United States? How long were they here? You were able to see the fruits of your labor. You were able to see all the information that you were bringing actually come to fruition in form. You were seeing links being made based on work you had done. The 9-11 investment. Okay, yes, it's a 302, guys. It's, a F it's the, basically the report form for FBI. Investigation is already becoming the largest and most complex in the Bureau's history. It's all hands on deck, around the clock. At the same time, the New York office is also responsible for thousands of other cases. Yeah, as you guys can see, the FBI has really small badges. A lot of people make jokes on the FBI's badge. Um, and then they carry Glock uh, 22s. Of, uh, no, uh, yeah, I think they carry Glock 40 calibers. I think they're, uh, everyone's switching back to 9 mils, though, now. Um, they pretty much figured out that 40 caliber is not that much better than 9 mil. Um, but yeah, that's what FBI agents typically carry is Glock handguns. And they can't be dropped. It didn't matter if you were on a Russian organized crime squad or working the Gambino family or you were following Russian spies. You had undercovers out there whose lives were on the line that you had to worry about. 
you had handlers that needed to be talked to. So you guys can see, look, state police is involved. You got NYPD. This guy's Secret Service right here. You can see the amount of manpower that's uh, being put towards this investigation. Already in this uh, in this um, photo alone, I can see multiple law enforcement agencies. You know, um, so this was a, a full effort from everybody involved. Uh, I can't tell which agency this guy works for. It's federal though, but I can tell from the badge. Um, this guy, this looks like the top of an ATF badge. Uh, you got NYPD over here, Secret Service, like I said before here. Uh, this guy is uh, New York State Police um, Bureau guy, Bureau guy. Uh, this is probably a Bureau guy here. So yeah, man, everyone working. You had victims that needed justice. It's very hard to tell an FBI agent, you need to switch this other thing off. My ship- Look, New Jersey State Police, NYPD again. And and yeah, like I told y'all before, everyone had to drop what they were doing and do 9-11. You know, like these guys that were doing this organized crime and yo, we're, you're, we're working at Gambinos, we're working Russian spies. Uh, they were basically like, listen, stupid, you're going to come on over and you're going to do 9-11 now. Sorry, everyone is going to involve be involved in this investigation. So um yeah <laughs> that's what happens when a terrorist attack comes man that the fbi drops everything they're doing and they're gonna figure out who the hell did it which is why if you're a terrorist you, they're gonna catch you bro there, there ain't no way that they're not gonna find you for example 6 a.m to 6 p.m nobody got days off there was no days off we had a job to do we were going to do it you didn't want to leave you wanted to first you wanted to just never pause from the work that you were doing and you got the greatest comfort from being around literally hundreds and hundreds of people who felt the same way and were doing the same thing with it with that level of commitment after an 18 hour day all right so there he is right there fbi and see as you can see here it says assistant special agent in charge which um I'll go ahead. Let me break this down for y'all real quick. Um, so you guys kind of know how uh, the FBI chain of command goes. And I've broken this down before, but I think on today's episode, it's even more important. So you got special agent, right? Um, and remember, guys, special agents are also known as 1811s and or criminal investigators. That is pretty much the the, the government job series for special agents, 1811. That's why the name of this channel is called Fed 1811. I was a former special agent with Homeland Screen Investigations. Um, you know, whether you work for DEA, HSI, ATF, whatever, all of us are considered special agents, right? So you got and that goes up from a GS one, from a GS typically five, all the way to GS thirteen. Okay, and that is like the pay scale that they use for the federal government. So that's special agent. Then you have something called the supervisory special agent, and or no, or and or group supervisor. Okay, that's a GS fourteen. He's a first line supervisor. Typically, they are in charge of five to ten special agents underneath them that basically do their investigations. They're the ones that carry the cases, and the supervisor manages all those agents that carry cases. Okay, supervisors do not carry cases because they're considered management at this point. Then above the supervisory special agent, something called an assistant special agent in charge or an ASAC, okay? An ASAC is basically um, the second line supervisor that oversees not only that supervisory special agent, but all the agents underneath them. And to top it off, they typically manage a couple of supervisors. So they have multiple groups and or squads underneath them, okay? So a typical breakdown might be like this. You got one special agent, right, who's a part of, let's say, organized crime. Then you got a supervisory special agent that also that is over him in organized crime. And you got 10 other agents in that group. Then you got an assistant special agent in charge on top of all, all of them. But that special agent in charge might also be in, uh, be oversee the violent crimes task force. He might also oversee um, cyber 
cyber crimes. He might also oversee um, foreign uh, intelligence, right? Or counter uh, counter espionage, right? So he might oversee five or six different groups that assistant special agent in charge, right? Then on top of the assistant special agent in charge, there's something called typically for the FBI, it's it just goes right into SAC or special agent in charge. He's the top, he's the top guy. He runs the office, okay? But in other agencies, they got something called a deputy special agent in charge, which is like for HSI, they still have them, which is the second guy in charge. They're the they're the second guy underneath the sack. So one more time from top to bottom, it goes special agent in charge underneath him, especially um, not in FBI, but for other agencies, you have a deputy special agent in charge. Then underneath him, you got an assistant special agent in charge. Then underneath him, you got a supervisory special agent, also known as the SSA. And then you got a regular special agent who carries cases. OK, guys, so that is a breakdown of how most federal agencies um are structure wise from top to bottom all right let's get back to the video like the video I for all the intel a lot of difficulty for all this falling. all this goddamn information i'm giving y'all goddamn it y'all ain't getting sauce like this anywhere else on the internet to sleep that is when i would stop and think of what had occurred what the losses were to firemen police and that caused me a lot of anxiety, stress, just thinking about all that. It's not the kind of work you can walk away from. A lot of people for a time were working day and night because this guy's asleep on the job. <laughs> I mean, hey, man, that's that's kind of what happens. I mean, uh, just so you guys know, the state and locals, a lot of the times I'll, I'll go ahead and say it. This might not be a popular opinion, but I got to say it. The state and locals a lot of times work harder than the special agents, guys. And the reason why is because the state and locals get overtime. So they're incentivized to work extra hours. The feds, we don't get overtime. You know, um, feds get something called LEAP, Law Enforcement Availability Pay. And what LEAP basically does, guys, is it gives you 25% of your base salary, okay? So um, I'll explain this. This is how the feds get paid. Let's say you make 50K per year base salary, right? Then you get an entry-level agent or whatever, right? Then you get 25% on top of that law enforcement availability pay. And what that basically covers is like you working random hours, you know, uncontrollable overtime, you know, going out late at night, doing interviews, staying late, etc. Right. You're expected to work 50 hours per week, which means 10 hour days. Right. So they account that into your leap. And what that does is it's basically like kind of a catch off for all the overtime that you're expected to make. So if your base salary is $50,000 per year. You get you add another twelve and a half uh, k to that, and that's going to make it sixty two point five k per year um, based on leap. Now, as you move up the ranks, right through after you know between four to five years, you'll be making well over a hundred thousand dollars as a special agent. However, you don't get overtime opportunities like the state and locals do. So, in places like New Jersey, New York, etc., where the state and locals get paid very well, a lot of times they out earn special agents. Man, I knew one guy that was a police officer in Connecticut. He made like three hundred k in one year just off of milking overtime because there's, a lot of times there's no cap. But with the feds, there's a cap. And on top of that, it's very difficult to get overtime. The only way that you can get overtime as a special agent typically are one of two to three ways. Number one, you work for a secret service or diplomatic security service and you do a lot of protection details, which makes you obviously inevitably has you working very, very long hours. Right. So that's one way. And then the other way is if you're doing like wiretaps or you're doing like scheduled um, work where like you're planning to work on a holiday or whatever, then you can go ahead and, you know, put it for overtime, whatever. But the first two ways I mentioned Wiretaps where, you know, you're really busting your ass and working a lot because you're listening to phones actively 24-7 and security protection details. Those are the two main ways that federal agents, 1811 special agents, whatever you want to call it, typically get overtime. But it's extremely difficult to get overtime for the feds, but the state locals get it all the time. Hence why we got this New Jersey State Police guy probably falling asleep here 
because, uh, you know, probably working a lot of hours at this point. <laughs> the stakes were high on both sides. As agents frantically begin to unravel the 9-11 plot, another major threat emerges. The second wave of attacks may be coming. You're thinking, we've got to solve this case. That's synapses firing, years of habit. That's what they'd been raised to do. But it was also crystal clear that they had to stop the next thing. What was the next thing? Where would the next thing be? Is it possible that it could be bigger or worse? We're all concerned. Was this the tip of the iceberg? Was there more to follow? You had the Pentagon attack, and of course, the plane that went down in Shanksville, Flight 93. So that's four major, major attacks all in one. What's to say there aren't five, six, 10, 12? We have to find out whatever there is that one can find out so that if there is another plot on the way, whether today, tomorrow, next week, next month, we stop it. The clear assumption by federal lawmen is that these terrorists had help from accomplices who may still be in the United States. What is not as clear is whether those accomplices were only bit players in this historic assault or whether they may still have still to be launched terrorist plans of their own. As the dust was still rising. There were two different mindsets. There was a brand new FBI director. His name was Robert Mueller, and he was a very exacting manager. He asked him. Donald Trump's best friend. <laughs> ah, man. <laughs> a million questions. Right after the World Trade Center attack, Robert Mueller came to the garage to see me. First, to you, the director of the FBI, who will subsequently introduce the attorney general. But uh, I am, uh, we are all very pleased and honored to have the director of the FBI, Bob Mueller, here. A morning meeting uh, with Director Mueller in the days after 9-11 was not just a morning meeting. It was a cross-examination. Uh, this is a group that you can see turned this parking garage into a huge command post. And so when you kind of think of that personality, the ability to run that case from headquarters for somebody who wanted to be that hands-on was the way he was leaning. Uh, you should know this is a great, hard-working group. They've been doing it uh, every day without a day off, working 12 to 16 hours. And he said that he was going to take the investigation back to Washington. With that... Whoa. So let me explain to you guys how big of a fucking deal that is. Let me, let me, let me really... Because... People don't understand this, and unless you're an investigator or you know you've done criminal cases at a high level, you'll really grasp what the fuck is going on with that you know um, request here to take the case away. When you put your blood, sweat, and tears into something, and you are running down leads, and you're writing reports, and you're interviewing a bunch of suspects, you got informants giving you information, you got hours of surveillance footage that you've been going through, and doing all the work, going through phone tolls, you know, going through passport records, going through immigration records, because none of these guys were U.S. citizens, right? And you have state and locals with you. You have immigration there. You got custom service there. You got every agency imaginable helping you, and everyone's busting their ass. And for the director to come in and say, yo, we're going to take this case and move it to headquarters, you're going to be like, what the fuck no? We've been busting our ass doing this. We're not going to do all this work and then pass it to HQ, those paper-pushing fucking losers, because let me keep it a thousand with you guys. 
any federal agency, whether it's HSI, FBI, DEA, etc., you go to headquarters, you go to Washington, D.C., those guys ain't doing shit. They're wearing suits all day. Fucking push a paper. Those guys rarely, if ever, actually do investigations. Okay, guys? So, you know, you're coming from a field office like New York, by the way, which the FBI in New York is ex- an extremely prestigious office. You're coming from the Southern District of, of New York, right? An extremely prestigious prosecutorial office. They've taken down some of the worst criminals in La Cosa Nostra, terrorist attacks, etc. And you got the FBI. There's a lot of egos here, okay? FBI New York and the Southern District of New York does not want to give this thing over to headquarters because I hate to say it, say it, but headquarters, regardless of what federal agency you work for, we all know those guys don't do shit, you know? So I can already imagine the anger, the frustration, and how um, pissed off agents would get after finding out that the director of your agency wants to move the investigation over to headquarters, especially when it happened in your jurisdiction, your AOR, or AKA your area of responsibility is what the government calls it, okay? So, um, you know, I, I just had to add a little bit of oomph to that and give you guys a little bit of emphasis as to why this is a big fucking problem and why if I was the case agent, I they they would have to pry the case file from my dead hands. I would not give it to them. The, you know, I mean, they tried this bullshit with me before on other investigations, obviously, that aren't this type of magnitude. And I would not give the fucking case up because when you bust your ass and you're a go-getter, you will not let people take your shit. And yeah, I, I can like flashbacks of bad memories are coming back to me right now just from hearing this. Uh, but let's get back into it. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, the director of the FBI. Despite the fact that thousands of leads are coming into the garage and agents are working them as fast as they can, three weeks ago we were all doing something else. The entire operation is one administrative decision away from being shut down. And within 24 hours, you all pulled together 28 agencies. I argued against that, but I said, Director, you cannot run an investigation at Washington if you don't have investigators. Disaster has produced any number of heroes. He said, I am aware of that, so I'm going to take half of your people down to Washington, D.C. Oh, man, yo. <laughs> yo. And, and again, me commentating as a former federal employee, I'm, I'm trying to explain to you guys the gravity of this. So you're telling me not only are you going to take the investigation from my fucking office, you're going to take half my personnel you're going to take the case agent. You're going to take the co-case agents. You're going to take the um, the surveillance teams. You're going to take the guys that are involved in, uh, that have the informants. You're going to take them to Washington, D.C.? Fuck no. Hell no. So I can only imagine, like, the fucking debacle that occurred after this. But let's keep watching. Which I argued against. So many heroes out there that we ought to- Yeah, he's putting it lightly. I argued against. I guarantee you there was a fucking shouting match. I guarantee you, I promise you guys, like when shit like this happens, I've been in meetings and boardrooms with um, with management fighting over cases that were not nearly as big as this. OK, we want to move this case to this AOR because we think the prosecution is going to be better or this guy's a stronger case agent. We need to move it here. Blah, 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 bro. Literally p- shouting matches in, in, in these offices over shit like this. So I can only imagine this guy. His sack, all the ASACs, probably the, the the assistant director of the New York field office, they were all probably fucking fighting with Mueller to keep this thing in New York. 
Let's see what happens. But he was the director. He was my boss. And he said, that's the way it's going to happen. He made that decision despite our best effort to convince him not to. And we will, we will bring these individuals to justice. Now, let me introduce the Attorney General of the United States, John Ashcroft. New York. Yo, they had the Attorney General there. Uh, the, the Guys, the Chief Law Enforcement Officer in the United States, okay? The Attorney General. So, obviously, this goes to show the gravity of what the hell is going on here. You got the Director of the FBI, brass all over the place, and you got the Attorney General in the house. I had real strong feelings about this. There were too many people dead. There was too Remember that USA that I told you guys about, Mary Jo, that I told you is the United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York? This dude is the Attorney General. That's her boss. That's how high up this is going. Much history. And there had to be an element of we feel responsible for this as well, and we need to make it right. When you think of the New York office of the FBI, we did the World Trade Center bomb. We did the case of the blind shake. We prevented all these other attacks. We know all these players. We prosecuted them in court. We've obtained conviction. They're all doing life. And we don't want something this important to be handed off to a bunch of people at headquarters. And he wants to be polite about it. A bunch of people at headquarters that don't do fucking jack shit because everybody knows people at headquarters don't do anything. That's a fact. Anyone that's a government employee will tell y'all that. Headquarters people don't do anything. So I would I know exactly how these agents feel being angry that they're trying to pry the case away from them to people that, quite frankly, aren't as competent as them. And the New York field office has done crazy big terrorist cases in them before, prosecuted them successfully, and been able to bring justice to those um, involved. So I would be mad too. By the morning of September 13th, the garage is fighting two battles, one against the terrorists, another to keep control of the investigation. And it's determined to win both. They couldn't get together between Fort Meade and Langley and the J. Edgar Hoover building. But then when you went into that space at the garage, who was there? NSA, CIA, FBI, NYPD, the Defense Department. See, they had everybody there in New York working together. But in D.C., it's way more you know, bureaucratic. Can't you get shit done down there? Oh, oh, what's your need to know? Uh, what's your clearance level? Uh, do you have authorization to get this kind of documents? Like, bro, get the fuck out of here with that bullshit, man. That's what happens in D.C. A bunch of paper pushers that don't do real investigations, man. Men and women from 16 intelligence agencies and all the information was on the table. They could literally yell it across the room to the next guy. All there doing it the way they were supposed to do. They couldn't get it together in Washington, but they could get it together in that garage. More than 25 agencies begin working together. They are out running Washington and determined to keep going. So many others want to thank you for the extraordinary response to uh, this extraordinary act of terror. FBI Director uh, Robert yeah. Mueller concedes the team in New York will continue to be a major driver in what is becoming an all-consuming investigation. Now, Damn right, baby. Don DeMarco. 
And and that's a big W, you know, as like I said before, like I, I know that feeling, guys. So for me, this is very personal. I, I know that that feeling of 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 um how do I say this? Of victory, like I keep the case, yes. Like, um, and I can't describe it to you guys unless you go ahead and do a major investigation and you know what it's like to have to fight for your goddamn investigation after you've put blood, sweat, and tears, and sometimes even years into this thing. Uh, I can't even describe it, but um, uh, this is awesome that the New York field office got to keep it because they were too invested. You know, they had too many agencies working together. I mean, the fact that they had the CIA and other intelligence agencies sitting right there next to them in that fucking garage without having to worry about skiffs and all classifications and all these other stupid ass documents and all this bureaucratic stuff that got us involved in 9-11 in the first place, which, by the way, just so y'all know, a big part of the reason why 9-11 happened was because intelligence agencies didn't want to share information with the FBI. And it took this goddamn event to unite a bunch of the federal law enforcement agencies, hence the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, etc. This was them realizing, fuck. The chickens have come to roost. We got to work with each other. No more of this bullshit about, oh, this is classified. Oh, what's your authorization? What's your need to know? Blah, blah, blah. No, fuck that shit. We got attacked. We got to fucking hit it hard. We got to work together. And they got it together in New York, but they did not uh, um, do that in Washington, D.C. Hence, why New York outgunned them, outran them, and was able to push the case. And not to mention, New York had a way better prosecutorial office with the Southern District of New York. And I guarantee you, they didn't want to give it up either on their end. So, uh, Mueller, you definitely take an L, my friend. I was pretty frightened when I first saw the building with the new occupancy. Martha Stewart's studio and test kitchens are on the ninth floor. There was the razor wire. I remember looking up and seeing guns hanging over the rooftop. You could see the guns clearly over the parapets. This was warfare. I thought, well, either we're a target or we are protected. And uh, it was uh, terrifying and yet comforting at the same time. You knew who they were when they got in the elevator. They were packing a weapon. <laughs> they were extremely serious about their jobs, but friendly. There were lots of people on that floor very busy with computers and uh, telephones ringing. And you can imagine what they had to try to, they were trying to figure out who the heck did this. The volume of leads coming in, um, you know, the, the trite expression, drinking from a fire hose. We were drinking from fire hoses from every fire department in the nation, it felt like. It was a flow that would not stop. And keep in mind, it was coming in not only from New York, but all over the country, all over the world. It's actually kind of funny because uh, Stewart was actually arrested, guys, for um, felony charges of a conspiracy to obstruct uh, of obstruction of an agency proceeding and making false statements to federal investigators and was sentenced in July 2004 to serve a five-month prison term uh, at a federal uh, correctional facility and a two-year period of supervised release, including five months of electronic monitoring. That's actually hilarious. Um, so, yeah, so she, she um, yeah, so she, she got uh, arrested I wonder if it was the FBI that grabbed her or if it was the SEC, U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. But basically what happened was she avoided a loss of $45,673 by selling all 3,928 shares of her I Am Clone System stock on December 27, 2001 after receiving material, non-public information from Peter Bakonovic, her broker at Merrill Lynch. The day following her sale, the stock value fell 16%. In the months that followed, Stewart uh, drew heavy media scrutiny, including a Newsweek cover he uh, headline, Martha's Mess. <laughs> So, yeah, she ended up getting in trouble for that um, insider trading and lying. 
I thought, God, these poor people working around. So, yeah, guys, don't let those looks fool you. She's a convicted felon, my friends. She's a fucking. <laughs> you know, them boys hit her up like. FBI, open up! <laughs> the clock. And I felt so sorry for them because there was no place to buy food. I think that's why Snoop Dogg is friends with her because she freaking, uh, she's a real G, man. Convicted felon, Martha Stewart. New York was basically shut down for a while after 9-11. I thought, well, maybe they'll allow me to bring down everything that we make in the test kitchen. Why not give it to these hardworking people who are... She was like, yo, I'm going to keep doing my insider trading, but, you know, y'all just uh, hear some food. <laughs> basically living on the second floor. So one day, Martha Stewart is coming up the ramp and she said i just want you guys to have something it was a standard size you know round uh, birthday type of cake layer cake and she said, i just really appreciate all you people what you're doing so uh we would take down food and 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 see the smiles and the and the weariness of the workers there on that floor everybody thanked her and she didn't try to uh, decorate the the, uh, the garage either I would have loved to have made over that garage. I probably would have made them some lounges where they could have some kitchens where they could eat. I would have probably put better lighting in there. It was a pretty dingy place. You have to have some humor to get you through these awful events. They, they, they keep you sane, you know. So um, Martha Stewart, uh, it was very, very nice. As we were finding out about all of the skyjackers, our thought at the time is we have to identify. Real quick, I just got to go ahead and show you all this real fast because this is too entertaining here. So I have here her actual indictment, guys. Okay, Martha Stewart's indictment. And um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and show it to you all real fast. Um, can't make this stuff up. Um so share screen and I, I went ahead and fast forwarded to it for you guys so that we don't um but here's her indictment document here enlarge it so <laughs> on or about january 25th 2002 the fbi and u.s attorney's office contacted the office of martha stewart and requested to interview stewart okay uh give me one second all right uh on or about january 31st 2002 after learning that the fbi and the u.s attorney's office had requested an interview with her and immediately following a lengthy conversation with her attorney martha stewart accessed the phone message maintained on a computer by her assistant and reviewed the phone message that peter bankinovic had left for her on december 27 2001 remember guys that's her advisor right there they both got indicted for this by the way and further to the conspiracy knowing that bank bank uh bakanovic's message for stewart was based on information regarding the sale and attempted sale of wax sale shares that Bekinovic subsequently caused to be conveyed to her. Uh, Stewart deleted the substance uh, of Bankovic's uh, phone message, changing the message from Peter Bankovic thinks I'm clone is going to start trading downward to Peter Bankovic re-M clone. After alerting the message, Stewart directed her assistant to return the message to its original wording. Crazy stuff. And then false statements. On or about February 4, 2002, Martha Stewart, accompanied by her lawyers, was interviewed in New York, New York by the SEC, the FBI, and the U.S. Attorney's Office in furtherance of the conspiracy and with the intent and purpose to conceal and cover up that uh, Bakanovic had caused, I think I pronounced it right that time finally, Bakanovic had caused Stewart to be provided information regarding the sale and attempt to sale of the wax sale shares and that Stewart had sold her I'm clone stock while in possession of that information. Stewart made the following false statement, statements of facts and substance and a part and concealed and covered up the following material facts among others. Stewart stated at the time when I'm clone was trading at approximately $74 per share 
which prior to December 27, 2001, had last occurred on December 6, 2001, Stuart and Peter Bakanovic both decided that Stuart would sell her I'm Clone shares when I'm Clone started trading at 60 per share. This statement was false and misleading in that, and Stuart well knew no such decision had been made. And they kind of just go into more of her lies, right? They just break it down, break it down, break it down. As you guys can see, they got a bunch of her lies. And then uh, Bakanovic's alteration of his worksheet. So they had her dead to rights, guys. You can see this is a lengthy indictment here if you guys want to check it out. Here's the case number if you want to look it up. Uh, this out again, the Southern District of New York, right? So this ended up happening a couple years after um, 9-11. So yeah, I can see why she was so... Um, friendly to the FBI. She thought that wouldn't get her in trouble, but next thing you know, uh, you know, she gets hit with that fucking... FBI, open up! <laughs> oh, man. I guess the FBI don't care about cookies, huh? So, all right. Let's get back to the documentary, guys. Had to had to make that quick little um thing for y'all, though. A quick little distinction. All right. So, back to regular schedule programming. We're talking about 9-11 no longer. Insider training from Martha Stewart. All of them in their links. So part of the installation at the garage was these uh, secure classified phone lines, and they, they proved to be vital. It would ring several times a day, and I'd be on the phone with uh, Ali Soufan, one of, one of the agents who was assigned over in Yemen. All right, this is where we hit the turning point. This is where we hit the turning point here, guys. Ali Soufan is a very famous FBI agent, uh, did a lot of high-profile cases, involved in a lot of uh, high-profile interviews, etc. So uh, let's get into it. The embassy in Sana'a investigating the USS call. Less than a year before 9-11, the USS Cole, an American destroyer, is refueling in Yemen. The bomb was carried by a small boat that helped the destroyer more in the heart. A tiny fishing boat, men on board waving and smiling, pulls up beside the destroyer and explodes. The bomb rips a hole in the side of the warship, killing 17 American sailors and nearly sinking the coal. I wonder who was behind the bombing of the USS Cole. See the attack on the USS Cole. This is critical because you start to see a picture come into richer focus. Who are the people who blew up the coal? And as you guys can see, right, this guy. Right. Oh, my God. Another plane has just hit. To see a picture come into richer focus. And he's the assistant director, director of public affairs. So obviously he's got to deal with like, you know, putting out a certain image and letting the people and the public know, hey, this is what we got going on, etc. Because people want answers, guys, when 9-11 um, happened. So, uh, so yeah. Who are the people who blew up the coal? Oh, another one. Another plane just hit. Right. Oh, my God. Another plane has just hit. It hit another building. We were trying to call headquarters and see what's going on in New York. And they basically said, you need to stay. And I was really annoyed. I mean, you want us to stay? The USS Cole can wait. You know, we're under attack. And the answer from headquarters was, it is not about the USS Cole. It's about what just happened here. You go to the embassy and so-and-so will give you uh, what you need to know. We started to identify a number of the individuals that were on the very... And just so you guys know, Ali Sufan, he's a Lebanese-American former FBI agent who was involved in the number one high-profile anti-terrorism case in the United States and around the world. So um, very famous. Nowadays, he's the uh, 
chairman and chief executive officer of the Sufan Group, a leading national security and counterterrorism expert. Um, so basically, he's like a consultant, you know, uh, nowadays, which, you know, a lot of the times he's, you know, you know, FBI agents, former feds in general, you know, they typically get some type of consulting gig in security. You know, it's, you know, typical nice retirement gig that pays you more because the private sector always pays more than uh, the government. And he's author of a couple of books as well. So, uh, so let's see what happens here. Various planes. As we develop that, we were able to send those names over to Ali Soufan, who was dealing with jailed extremists. I went with my CIA colleague in his car back to the embassy. We go to his office and he gave me a manila envelope and I opened it and I could not believe what I was seeing. Khaled Mehdar and Nawaf Hazim, who were connected to people who were involved in the USS cult, had been in the United States. They were identified as hijackers. Two people who were on the planes. We're looking for them in Yemen. Our government knew that they were in San Diego. Holy! Guys, that is an L. I can't even explain the, the gravity of that. So, and you guys thought I was kidding around when I said that the CIA wasn't sharing information with the FBI. That is just one instance where they did not share information. So people that were involved in the attack were in the United States the entire time, getting visas, coming in, flying on planes, all this bullshit. And the CIA knew they were in the States all this time. They had their radar on these fucking dudes because they were they were linked to people that bombed the USS Cole. That, my friends, big L. Uh, but let's continue on. That's a bombshell of a development right there. But hey, after not after a terrorist attack as big as 9-11, everything's got to come out, man. What Ali Soufan has just learned, but no one in the garage yet knows, is that the CIA has been tracking two of the hijackers for nearly a year. Oh, shit. The CIA, however, had yet to process the information and so failed to share it with the FBI in time to locate the hijackers. I just threw the file back on his desk. The only thing I can do is just get out of his office, straight to the bathroom across the hall and puke my guts out until one of my colleagues came in and said, but are you okay? And, um, and here's the thing, guys. Um, internationally, the CIA runs the show. Domestically, the FBI runs the show. That is why he's so angry. Because the FBI has jurisdiction over all terrorists that are in the United States that are domestic. CIA has jurisdiction over all terrorists that are foreign. So the fact that these guys were known and or suspected terrorists in the United States operating, getting visas, et cetera. And the CIA had not shared that information with local, with, with law enforcement, federal law enforcement is crazy. And the fact that they didn't share with the FBI is a bigger problem. Because remember, guys, I want to make this extremely, extremely clear. Don't believe the movies. The CIA is not a law enforcement agency. They are an intelligence agency, which means they operate foreign. Law enforcement agencies operate domestic. FBI agents carry guns. CIA operatives carry guns maybe foreign, but they're not carrying them here and they're not doing any type of domestic type of uh, enforcement. They're not law enforcement officers. They're not sworn law enforcement officers. They operate outside of the realm of law enforcement, if you know what I'm saying. 
Okay, so that is why he's so angry because these guys crossed into their jurisdiction for all intents and purposes, and the CIA failed to notify the FBI, and then these guys ended up being involved and identified in um, the flight manifests for the 9-11 attacks. I, I remember I just looked at him and said, they knew. They knew everything. The CIA would also acknowledge failing to put the Al-Qaeda operatives on the terrorist watch list sooner. Oh, man. That's another. Just so you guys know, what is a terrorist watch list? Terrorist watch list, guys, is a database, right, um, that basically has all people that are suspected and were linked to terrorist activities um, in within the National Crime in the, uh, NCIC, okay? And basically, if you run a name and that person may be involved in terrorism, whatever it may be, that information is known to law enforcement personnel, etc. So the CIA did not put them into the terrorist database quickly enough. And had they know, had they put them in in time, the bureau might have been able to act, and or those guys would have been flagged, and they wouldn't have gotten those visas. Because remember, these guys all enter the United States on fucking visas, guys. All right. It is easy to get a visa turned down, and if these guys had been on a terrorist watch list, they would have never gotten the visas in the first place and entered the United States. So you guys can see how this was a colossal fucking fuck up, right? So, um, and this is a big reason why the Department of Homeland Security was created, so that information sharing would be a lot, um, lot smoother. So then we don't we don't end up with situations like this. And this is why you know the CIA and FBI have always typically butted heads. And a lot of it stems from this 9-11 situation. Days after the attacks, the Yemenis reveal that they are hiding something extraordinary. When he walked to the room, he won't even look at me. He literally took his chair and turned it towards the wall. Ali Sufan is brought to meet a secret prisoner, a terrorist whose alias is Abu Jandal. So he oh, this is going to be a big one. Won't even recognize that I'm a Muslim. He didn't believe me. Uh, but a little bit by a little bit, the relationship was a little bit better. Uh, he started lecturing us a lot about Islam, about uh, the world, about uh, bin Laden, about uh, revolutions. The reason the Yemenis have been hiding Abu Jandal, he is Osama bin Laden's bodyguard. Ah, shit. Sufan shows Abu Jandal photos of the World Trade Center attacks, but he adds a lie that hundreds of Muslim Yemenis died in the towers. Those <laughs> you triggered my trap card! Deception. People were on the planes that hit the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. Those people murdered all the Yemenis. So he was totally taken back. He put his head between his hands and he started shaking and he said, I, I need five minutes. Just so you guys know, killing you know Muslims, innocent Muslims is a big problem, even if you're waging jihad. So that's why it immediately made him go, what the hell's going on here? Am I, you know, Am I fighting for the right cause? So, you know, shout out to Ali Sufan. He knew uh, what to say to really pry at this guy. Because if he said, hey, a bunch of innocent Americans died and stuff, the dude would have been like, I don't give a shit. But for him to say, hey, we had fellow Muslims and Yemenis dying, that is what the, the secret was, my friends. 
So we went out the room. We left him in the room and I walked in again. And then uh, he said, I think the Sheikh went crazy. What do you want to know? I said, we have a photo book. Some people probably you know, some people I'm sure you don't know. He identified Muhammad Atta. He identified about seven people who later were identified all as hijackers, giving us their nationality, their aliases, and a lot of details about them. Bam, as you guys can see right here, Salam al-Hazmi, Ahmed al-Ghadami, Ghadmi, uh, Mahand al-Shehri, and then, you know, you can see all their stuff here, right? Driver's licenses, etc. That was significant. This is the evidence we needed. Bin Laden's bodyguard has now given the... And feel free to pause, guys, to look at, you know, all their stuff. I mean, this is a lot of um, <laughs> personal information that's on here. But yeah, as y'all can see, man, you know, they had non-immigrant uh, non visas, applications out. They got driver's licenses, all that stuff, man. The FBI absolute proof connecting Al-Qaeda to the World Trade Center attack. We understand. And there's a link right there, man. That's how they made the link right there. And that it's really important to pass this information to New York. Kenny, it's Bin Laden, 100%. When those first clues in Yemen and Abu Jandal's revelations to Ali Sufan come into the garage, you know, the people who are piecing together everything from everywhere say, okay, this is big. This has meaning. Seven of the hijackers were identified as Qaeda operatives by the bodyguard. That's huge. That's a big, big find, guys. Perfect. To get um, to get that kind of source information. The breakthroughs that occurred in those interviews. Seven were Al-Qaeda. Was really putting the key into the lock of the secrets of 9-11 and turning it. Abu Jandal was that. Turning to what's now a sprawling criminal investigation of the coordinated suicide attacks, investigators have made quick work of identifying the skyjackers. CBS so Abu Jandal was identifying people left and right, and all the information was coming straight to New York, and New York were acting upon this information, putting wanted posters for some individuals that we identified. Look at that. Look at all. The, and they were able to use this to identify other people. And this guy actually was involved in the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. They still have not caught him to this day, guys. Um, and, I, and I broke this case down. You can check it out on the documentary playlist. Um, but yeah, this dude is still not found to this day. And following on a lot of the leads that we were generating. The board became a, a lot more refined as time went on, as more information came in that we could permanently affix up there in terms of a flowchart. You wanted to get back after you did your lease and write up your investigation and document it so that the case squad could have that information as soon as possible. And the case squad is the case that is the basically the squad that's running that investigation. You got one primary case agent and everyone is funneling information to him. He's the one directing the case, working closely with the U.S. attorneys, and then everyone else is supporting. Something you're holding may be a missing piece and you don't know it. You don't know what you have. They know what you, they need. 
because the case squad has all the facts guys so you as helping out you don't know the the importance of what piece of evidence you may have you might have a missing piece that they didn't know about or they've been searching for so um that's why it's so important that everything needs to be put through the main group and they're the, they're the ones that go ahead and you know make the final decisions or make the investigative calls because they have all the facts everyone else is just in an assist role funneling information to the primary group there's one case agent okay and that's uh typically how any investigation goes Brian went on for like 60 days before a day off, which is, you know, it was okay for me because I... And real quick, just so y'all know, a squad is what the FBI calls his group. So remember, like I said before, you got your supervisory special agent and then you got a squad underneath him. It's comprised of somewhere between 10, uh, between five to 10 agents in that squad. And you're going to have that one case agent that's running the investigation. And you got nine other agents that are supporting him. Probably two or three of them might even be co-case agents on it with him. Um... And that squad is the main squad running that investigation. And then everyone else is supporting them. I was in the zone. I, was, I wanted to be with my peers. I wanted to be with other FBI agents. The leads from 9-11, which is opening entire new books into Al-Qaeda that had never been cracked before, including the recruitment of English-speaking people to come to flight schools. In terms of, you know, connecting the dots who are these people who flew the planes in? How did they learn to fly? With whom were they associated when they were in the country? We realized pretty quickly there's an awful lot of flight schools that can teach you to fly a commercial airliner. And of those flight schools, a lot of them had a lot of Mideastern males as students. We need to know what else is happening. Who else is involved? Who else is a sleeper cell somewhere? waiting for the instructions to attack. The thing that was struck me so odd when I went into the garage was that I smelled like gas and oil and rubber and all the things that, you know, we typically find in a garage. And you're among, you know, all these computer terminals and FBI people setting leads and covering leads. Leads are pouring in from all over the world, but one of the most critical comes from inside the FBI itself. We had been pushing to our management in Minneapolis to let New York know we had a subject who had to be connected to the attacks. When I got to New York, I immediately went to the garage, ready to brief agents and prosecutors on Mr. Musawi. That's a big find. Zacharias Musawi is a French citizen. He has been in flight school in Minnesota until weeks before 9-11. When the FBI is alerted to his strange behavior, agents arrest him on immigration charges. All right, let me pause this and stop this right here because I got to <laughs> – this is what the JTTF does a lot of the times, guys, okay? So a lot of the times they might not have enough information to go ahead and get people on actual terrorism charges, but what they're able to do is they know that they're in there on, you know, a visa or some type of immigration document, and they're able to go ahead, use immigration, right? Back then it was INS, Immigration Naturalization Service, but nowadays it's going to be HSI, Homeland Security Investigations, what I used to be a part of, and HSI agents have – 
immigration authority. They have, you know, obviously you can do customs authority, immigration authority, et cetera. And it's a powerful tool to use against the um, terrorism. And HSI, honestly, guys, is probably one of the most important partners in JTTF's Joint Terrorism Task Forces because the FBI has limited Title Eight authority. Title Eight is immigration um, statute, okay, Nas- the INA, Nas- uh, Immigration Nationality Act of the United States. So that falls under Title Eight. FBI have very limited Title Eight authority, and they don't really know how immigration works. However, HSI agents do. And what the FBI does a lot of the times is if they can't get a guy on material support for terrorism or some type of terrorism charge, a lot of the times they're going to have to revert and default back to immigration because a lot of these guys come on in on visas. They have green cards, et cetera. So it's an amazing tool to use to get guys to cooperate, to put guys in jail, to kind of thwart terrorist attacks before they happen. Because if they're sitting in an immigration jail, they can't be out here plotting against the United States. Um, so uh, this is you know, another example of the importance of working with other agencies and leveraging other people's skill sets, other agencies' um, skill sets and other um, expertises and authorities to your advantage to combat terrorism. And this is what should have been done between the CIA and FBI, but it was not done. So now you know, they're picking up the pieces domestically with the FBI and, in this case, INS. Because remember, INS uh, was still in existence in 2001. They didn't cease to exist after 2003, the Department of Homeland Security Act, and then they merged U.S. Customs Service and Immigration Naturalization Service together to create ICE. And then from ICE, you got Homeland Security Investigations and uh, ERO, Enforcement and Removal Operations. HSI is a special agency. They do the investigation. So they're basically customs, special agents, INS special agents combined in one. And then you got um, ERO, who are the deportation officers. They're the INS side that would have done the deportations back in the day. Back to the video. Like the video, by the way, guys. You're going to find content like this anywhere else. Zachariah Masawi was taking flying lessons, but raised uh, concern by the instructor is that he just wanted to know how to fly. He really didn't want to learn everything there was about manning an airplane. This revelation about what the hell? is conveyed what? to Ali Sufan over in... He doesn't want to learn how to fly planes and nothing else? Yemen. Sufan runs it past bin Laden's bodyguard. Abu Jandal identified Masawi. Basically, he gave us uh, a lot of things about him, his involvement in Al-Qaeda, his alias in Al-Qaeda. Now we know that this person wasn't only a crazy guy who said, I want to learn how to fly, but I just want to take off. I don't care about landing. (laughs) (laughs) What the fuck, man? That's definitely going to have alarm bells going off. This guy is actually a member of Al-Qaeda and worked for Osama bin Laden in Afghanistan. Realizing the terrorist network in the U.S. is larger than anyone imagined, the FBI puts even more pressure on Musawi. Mr. Musawi was hostile. Um, We could tell he didn't like us. We were going to go for broke on this interview. And so we said, we're aware that you're a member of a group when he heard the word group, that really concerned Musawi. His, his oh, he eye, was like, oh, shit. He's kind of got wide. His jaw dropped. That also fed our concern as to were there others out there, potential hijackers and or potential support elements that would create a second wave. 
uh, create other incidents. I said, Mr. Musawi, you're here with us in custody and you're going to remain in custody. But your friends who are out there who are going to carry out this attack, they're not. And if people are hurt, you are going to be held accountable by the United States government. Everyone was in a high state of alert. When's the next attack? Obviously, we didn't prevent this one, but can we prevent the next one? And this is a perfect example, guys, of, you know, two offices working together. You got FBI Minneapolis coming across this critical information about Masawi, and then you got FBI New York feeding that information to FBI New York, and they're able to enact on it and go ahead and push that lead and move the investigation along. And this is the power of working together. And I mean, hell, you got even NTSB in here, you know, working with the FBI during the 9-11 attacks. And for, for you guys that are wondering, NTSB is involved in investigations that have to do with any type of um, airline accident that might result in damage or death. And uh, they actually investigated the Kobe Bryant crashing. Um, let me pull up their, their thing real quick, and I'll read a little bit more about them. But not, they're not really a law enforcement agency. They basically, if they find some foul play, they turn it over to the, um, to the FBI. But, you know, this goes to show you guys the magnitude of this investigation, how it was literally everyone in the government was working on figuring out who the hell these guys were. The urgency for sure wasn't identifying co-conspirators. Was it identifying anybody who might have been working with Musawi to do the same thing, who might have been financing him, who might have trained him? Was Musawi going to be used in a terrorist plot um, after that? I am sure he was. They didn't send him here for tourism, right? They sent him for terrorism. Uh, but then they sent him for tourism. They sent him for terrorism. <laughs> uh, and guys, the National Transportation Safety Board is an independent U.S. government investigative agency responsible for civil transportation accident investigation. So um, obviously, that is where they would come into play. That that um, in this role, the NTSB investigates and reports on aviation accidents and incidents in certain types of. Uh, highway crashes, ship and marine accidents, pipeline incidents, bridge failures, and railroad accidents. So that is what they do, guys. And they were involved in this case as well, obviously, because there were planes involved. Again, he was arrested before that happened. That was very, very important in terms of establishing a real concrete connection between bin Laden and al-Qaeda and the hijackers as well. More links, guys. So uh, uh, Masawi, right, links bin laden and his bodyguard to all the other guys we're working day and night we're interviewing people left and right you know we're getting significant amount of information it's very important to pass it to new york yes everything has to go through you know from other agents to the lead office from the lead office to the lead squad from the lead squad to the lead case agent then bam that agent pushes it to the AUSA's office, and that, my friends, is the flow of information on how investigations work. However, some of this intelligence is difficult to interpret. In particular, the agents struggle with intercepted Al-Qaeda phone calls about a mysterious figure linked to the attacks, but still at large. And there was all this chatter. And part of the chatter was this guy Mukhtar, which was believed to be somebody that was involved. This guy was also involved in the investigation pretty heavily. I remember seeing him in other documentaries, Frank Pellegrino. But didn't know who he was. To chase down this lead, Ali Sufan flies to a secret prison in Thailand. He interrogates a captured bin Laden associate named Abu Zubaydah. 
And just so y'all know that, 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 that it's a black site, which means it's basically not on the radar controlled and run by the CIA where they torture individuals. I'll just give it to y'all raw. That's, they don't want to say that in this documentary, but that's what's really going on here. We're hearing about this the one who, whose brain flew away all the time. I'm like, who is who is this guy whose brain flew away? Maybe he's Bin Laden because he went crazy after 9-11 doing something like this. Sufan shows Zabaida photos of known terrorists trying to trace the Al-Qaeda network from the bottom up. But Zabaida is stunned. So he said, please, brother, don't play games with me. This is Mukhtar. This is the one who did the plane operation. The FBI analysts have been mishearing the name. Lee Mukhtar is actually Mukhtar. Here we go. And that confusion with Arabic. What? Sheikh <laughs> what the fuck? And they're able to identify him as what? Let's backtrack that real quick. Mukhtar. And Mukhtar is Khalid Sheikh Muhammad. Bam. Someone the FBI thought they knew well. I was like, whoa. I was totally shocked. Totally shocked. Because honestly, at the time, we didn't even know that he was a member of Al-Qaeda. In an instant, Sufan makes a stunning connection. Khalid Sheikh Muhammad is the uncle of Ramzi Youssef. Oh, man. And Ramzi Youssef, guys, is the main mastermind behind the 1993 World Trade Center bombings. If you guys watch my podcast that I did on the 93 World Trade Center bombings, you guys are going to get a lot more insight as to um, who Ramsey Yusuf is, how he plotted the attack, how they did the attack, and how they used rental trucks with bombs to try to take out the World Trade Center back in 93 in a foiled attempt. So this is a huge, huge, huge fucking connection. The mastermind of the first World Trade Center attack in 1993. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, before joining Al-Qaeda, came to Abu Zubaydah, and he wanted to do an operation in the United States targeting the World Trade Center to follow up with what Ramzi Yusuf started, destroying the buildings. And his plot was to rent Cessna planes and fly them into the two buildings. That was Obeda's response was like, so you break some windows, at least fill these Cessna planes with explosives so they can do some damage. So KSM liked the idea. That was Obeda told him that the only person who will have a capability like this is Osama bin Laden. What he had done is he had taken all of Ramzi Youssef's plans and kind of blown the dust off them and brought them to bin Laden and said, they're still good plans. We could still do bad things. And mind you guys, Ramzi Youssef is in prison at this point for eight years. He got uh, arrested, I think, in 94, 95. So he had been in jail now for some, some years. And he targeted 
um, the World Trade Center because it was a symbolic of America's power and dominance over the free world. Okay, um, and and it's you know financial prowess. So that is why he targeted the World Trade Center. Which you know again, check out that podcast, guys. Really interesting stuff. It'll make nine eleven make more sense um, when you watch it. But uh, but that is why they target the World Trade Center. And then also other thing too, I want you guys to know is that. Bin Laden, guys, was wealthy. He came from a wealthy family. He was a multimillionaire. I think he had an engineering degree. He wasn't an idiot. So he had the money and the ability to fund terrorism, hence why they went to him in the first place to try to get um, this 9-11 attack off the ground. So basically, continuing what Ram Youssef failed in 93. They just need the money behind them. And that was the genesis of 9-11. There you go. They just said they need the money behind them. But no one talks about how bin Laden was extremely wealthy. You know, you can't be hiding in caves for the better part of a decade without having some money, you know, funding terrorism. You know, it's expensive to to get these bombs. (laughs) So, yeah, bin Laden had quite a bit of money, guys. He's Saudi Arabian, man, that oil money for real. You know, New York will be very interested in KSM. So... I called on a secure line, Kenny, and I said, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was identified as the mastermind of 9-11. brief Barry just hung up with Ali and here's what he's provided those details were put up on the board the board is finally complete there is now a clear line from the original World Trade Center bombing through Khalid Sheikh Mohammed to Osama bin Laden Bam, them links are coming in now, baby. And the 2,978 murders on 9-11. Almost 3,000 people gone, man. Our enemies are about to face the consequences. America! Give me a hell yeah! What? What? On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. It was... That humble little building on the West Side Highway was housing the most complex, important, largest investigation in FBI history. An extraordinary confession from the suspected mastermind of the 9-11 attacks. According to the Pentagon, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed admitted responsibility for 9-11 and for a string of attacks and plots, including plans to kill Presidents Clinton and Carter. And that picture right there is him after uh, <laughs> they made they did that on purpose. That was him after again interrogated by the CIA for several weeks and months. What was accomplished out of that garage was nothing short of amazing. Tonight, I can report to the American people and to the world. The United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of Al-Qaeda. 
And don't worry, guys, I'm going to go ahead and do a much deeper dive on how they found and killed Osama bin Laden in subsequent podcasts related to the 9-11 attacks. I told you guys that this was going to be a monster, um, but don't worry, I'll be covering that for y'all. One by one, the United We're going to go more into the CIA side of the house when it comes to finding and killing bin Laden. States dealt with those responsible for 9-11. Zacharias Musawi pleaded guilty to conspiring to kill Americans as part of the attacks. He is currently serving a life sentence without parole. He's in ADX uh, Florence, guys, which is uh, the the most secure prison, worst prison, federal prison in the United States. That's where a bunch of people are being held right now to include um, Robert Hansen, um, the Boston Marathon bombers, like all the worst terrorists, all the worst people are held in that prison over there in Florence, Colorado. Khalid Sheikh Muhammad, the mastermind of the attacks, remains at Guantanamo Bay. You get waterboarded every day, probably. <laughs> His trial has yet to happen. What began as an improvised response to an emergency evacuation yielded extraordinary results. And that was not just figuratively, but also quite literally the start of something. It was a new model. The structure that evolved in the 26th Street garage is known as the Joint Operations Center. In FBI parlance, the jock and it has become the template for counterterrorism activities. Agencies cooperate. Yeah, uh, yeah, and actually, um, th th yeah, th there's a bunch of agencies that w follow a similar format uh, to this day, guys. So that's that's cool. That that's how it started. Closely, intelligence is shared quickly, and there is constant vigilance. I look at that warehouse and I realize it's whispered role in history. There's no sign and nobody really knows what happened in there. What went on after 9-11, it should forever be here that the largest investigation in the history of US law enforcement, if not international law enforcement, was run from this very rudimentary, grease-lidden on the floor, oil-slicked garage. It's, it's just an incredible feat, it really is. And all the memories of the garage, both stressful but also enlightened, like hopeful. It was all the best of everybody was here in the garage. It was. The investigators support the people. And that's what was so great about, you know, everything in the, in the garage was just work and trying to solve this, you know, most heinous crime. of. I, I think it was really great that they were able to bring agents that were actually involved in the investigation, U.S. attorneys, etc., uh, you know, to do this um, documentary. They gave really good insight um, because they were personally involved in the investigation, which is, you know, obviously a very... A difficult thing to do with a lot of these um, law enforcement documentaries.
ever, right? I mean, they're just unspeakable, really. But everybody just sort of put aside the unspeakable and got it done. Putting aside the unthinkable and getting it done is what FBI agents are trained to do. Now, after two decades in Afghanistan, American troops are out. The threat based on history came true. Government fell in an instant. Taliban seized control. We're never going to eliminate terrorism in our lifetime. Just like the FBI's mission never ends. They'll regroup, find new sources, and stay ahead of the terrorists as they have for the past 20 years. Preserving our safety in an increasingly complicated world. One Sunday, I was walking up the street um, near my house. There was this little church on the Upper East Side, and I remember walking, and, you know, they were singing hymns. And I was like, they're happy. And they should be. They should be not. It's okay to be joyful and sing in church. And I remember feeling like taking a minute and sitting outside and uh, listening to the hymns. Because it was, I think, the first time I was reconnecting with New York. First time I was seeing my fellow New Yorkers, you know, being New Yorkers and singing. I am, you know, and they were joyful inside the church. So for me, it was rewarding because it was like, it's okay, you know, humanity is here. It's going to be okay. Yeah, that was a good documentary, man. Um, it goes to show you guys that, um, you know, as much as people say, oh, 9-11 was fake or blah, 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 that's fine. You know, the conspiracy theorists can say what they're going to say. And I'm going to definitely break down the conspiracy theorists' theories, um, views as well, because some of them are some pr pretty valid points. And like I said before, I'm going to be objective about it. I'm giving you guys the whole trilogy. We're talking about the FBI's response, you know, which we just covered just now. They were going to cover how the CIA found and killed bin Laden. They were going to talk about what they found at bin Laden's compound. They were going to go ahead and cover the conspiracy theorists, which is why, like I said before, this is going to be a monstrosity of a podcast um, trilogy of episodes, I guess, so to speak. But uh, one thing you can't fake is that, you know, the agents definitely put the fucking work in. You know what I mean? These guys were heavily invested. They worked really hard. They were able to identify these guys, um, put links together, as you guys can see, and, um, you know, bring the investigation to a close. And real quick, what I'll do is, is I'll show you guys about uh, Masawi real fast. Um, here is his, well, here he is right here first, okay? Um, Zacharias Masawi uh, is a French member of Al-Qaeda who pleaded guilty in U.S. federal court to conspiring to kill U.S. citizens in the United States as part of the September 11th attacks. Let me enlarge this for y'all real fast. He is serving... Uh, life prison, life in prison without parole at the federal ADX Supermax prison in Florence, Colorado. Masawi is the only person ever convicted in U.S. court in connection with the 9-11 attacks. So real quick, here's an overview. As you guys know, when we talked about with the uh, FBI Minnesota, um, in charge of immigration violation, he aroused suspicion while taking flight courses in Egan, Minnesota. On December 11, 2001, Masawi was indicted by a federal grand jury. So two months after 9-11, 
uh, no, actually three months after 9-11, uh, he, uh, or no, two, yeah, yeah, three months. My math sucks. United States District Court for the District of Virginia on six felony charges, conspiracy to commit acts of terrorism, transcending national boundaries, conspiracy to commit aircraft piracy, conspiracy to destroy aircraft, conspiracy to use weapons of mass destruction, conspiracy to murder U.S. state, United States employees, and conspiracy to destroy property. Messiah was alleged by federal prosecutors to have been uh, a replacement for the first 20th hijacker, possibly Ramzi bin al-Shibi. Bin al-Shibi and Zechariah Essabar uh, were denied visas. However, prosecutors in Massawi's drawn-out trial in the U.S. had difficulty connecting him to the 19 participants. Okay. Um, so, so this is pretty interesting. During the trial, uh, Massawi initially stated that he was not involved in the September 11th attacks, but that he was planning an attack of his own. Some al-Qaeda members reportedly corroborated Massawi's statements to an extent saying that he was involved in a plot other than 9-11, but prosecutors believed that his story had no merit. On April 3rd, 2006, Massawi is found to be eligible for the death All right, test, 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 test. All right, we got a live feed. All right, so sorry about that, guys. Once again, sound issue hit, but we're working through it. On May 3rd, 2006, the jury decided against the death penalty for Masawi. The next day, he was sentenced to life in prison without parole. As he was let out the courtroom, Masawi clapped his hands and said, America, you lost I won. I don't know about that, my friend. You got life in prison. Three jurors decided Masawi had only limited knowledge of the September 11th plot, and three described his role in the attack as minor, if any, if he had any role at all. Following the sentencing, Masawi recanted his testimony, uh, stating he was not a member of the September 11, 2001 conspiracy, but part of another Al Qaeda plot, which was not to occur after, which was not to occur after September 11th, which was to occur. Um, excuse me. So yeah, there you go, guys. Uh, Zacharias Masawi, the only person that was um, ever convicted in U.S. court with connection with the 9/11 attacks. So yeah, man. Um, two uh, and here's the actual indictment here too, guys. Right, the formal indictment. He was, you know, in that out of the Alexandria division, obviously headquarters, um, you know, for all these different charges, conspiracy to commit acts of terrorism, transcending national boundaries, conspiracy to commit aircraft piracy, conspiracy to destroy aircraft, conspiracy to use weapons of mass destruction, conspiracy to murder United States employees, and conspiracy to destroy property. So quite a bit of things. And, you know, this is a pretty long indictment, you know, and uh, it's actually there on U.S. Department of Justice.gov if you guys want to look at it. So, um, but yeah. Hope you guys enjoyed that podcast, man. Um, like I said before, 9-11 is a sensitive topic to a lot of people. Probably the worst terrorist attack in U.S. history. Again, this was the first part 
of the multiple part series. We covered the FBI's investigation of the 9-11 attacks. Next, we're going to cover how the CIA tracked and found bin Laden and eventually killed him. Then we're going to cover um, what was found at his house, right? All the bin Laden tapes. Then we're going to go ahead and cover the conspiracy theories around 9-11 so that we can give a, a complete and objective look at the entire event in itself. So uh, yeah, man, hope you guys enjoyed that, man. Uh, it was a lot of fun for me to do it. And um, yeah, other than that, I'll catch you guys on another episode of Fed It. Peace. I was a special agent with Homeland Security Investigations, okay, guys? HSI. The cases that I did mostly were human smuggling and drug trafficking. No one else has these documents, by the way. Here's what Fed It covers. Dr. Lafredo confirmed lacerations due to stepping on glass. Murder investigation. I'm reaching in his jacket. You don't know. And he's positioning. Been on February 13, 2019. You're facing two counts of premeditated murder. Racketeering and Rico conspiracy. Young slime life here and after referred to as YSL. The defendants is, uh, six nine. And then this is Billy Seiko right here. Now, when they first started, guys, six nine ran. I'm a fed. I'm watching this music video. You know, I'm bobbing my head like, hey, this shit lit. But at the same time, I'm pausing. Oh, wait, who this? Right? Oh, who's that in the back? Firearms and violent crimes. A.K.A. Pusha T. Violated. In order to stay away from the victim. After Pusha T. Arrested after shooting at King of Diamonds. Miami Strip Club injured one person. This is the one that, that's going to 